Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you that when we gather together, it's not the ramblings and ravings of a man that we hear. It's not the opinions of a person um, just like anyone else, but rather, Lord, this is your word in which you reveal yourself to us, in which you show us your heart for your people. And so I pray, God, that you would do a mighty work in, in us. Spirit of God, be active through your word. Bring conviction, and with that conviction, grace and mercy to meet it that brings about repentance and a changed way of living. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so this is now the second week of Advent. Two candles lit on our Advent wreath. This is the time of year in the church calendar that comes from the Latin word adventus, which means coming or arrival, and it marks the anticipation of the coming of Christ at Christmas. And so in Advent, like I said earlier, this is a unique time of year because in it we, we, we get this chance each year to share in the history, to remember the history of God's people that waited with great anticipation. As we wait for Christmas with great anticipation, we think of those who waited with great anticipation for hundreds of years for their Messiah to come, singing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, singing songs like this for their Redeemer to come. We look around, you know, and um, at Advent we share a similar anticipation because we look around in the world and we see that these events that are taking place that sometimes seem to suggest that the very fabric of society is coming undone around us. We see war, persecution, injustice, hatred, wickedness, and we battle with our own internal enemies, enemies of the soul, enemies of our own sin, enemies of addictions, enemies of, of the soul that attack us on various fronts, suffering, death, on this side of eternity, and yet we know that there's a promise of full and final peace in which sin and suffering and death shall be no more that's made possible because of what happened at Advent. And so we, we reflect on that. We, we just look around in our own time, as Israel did, so we know he's coming again. We know that there's final restoration. We know there's final peace. And yet we look around in our own time as Israel waited for their Messiah. We know things are not the way that, that they're supposed to be when peace, when God's peace is finally made complete. And yet, you know, the wars continue. Evil persists. And so we, here's what we ask. We ask, how long, O Lord? You know, how long until its end? And Zechariah is addressing precisely this point. He's addressing a disappointed people who believed that after exile, coming out of exile and returning to the land, um, finally, they'd be able to return to peace see and experience this kingdom of God. And yet they're also looking around in the world, they're seeing that things are not the way that they're supposed to be. Not only is the shalom or peace that they seek elusive under the Persian rule, but they're surrounded by nations that have declared themselves to be enemies of God and enemies with his people. And so God speaks through the prophet Zechariah into the midst of this disappointment. You know, into the midst of this like, I read those sections of prophecy that talk about peace on earth. And yet I look around and I, I, it's so far and it's so discouraging. And so he speaks into this to, to give us a summary of what's happened so far, right? Chapters 1 through 6. Zechariah shares these night visions in which the main point is to 
envision God's return to his people and their return to God, that in some sense there will be an advent for God's people, a coming of the Lord in which they will truly find the peace they seek. They'll truly find the peace they seek. Then in chapter seven through eight, he says, but we're not there yet, right? There's this contrast between the circumstances in which God's people presently find themselves and that incredible future in those days, right, has been preached so faithfully last week when God would finally dwell in the midst of his people and through them bless the nations. Now in chapter nine, we arrive here and we see the first of two oracles that will really, in many ways, wrap up the book. Oracles are are essentially prophetic utterances. This is the Lord speaking directly through his prophet to his people. And in this, he will continue to hold out the promise of peace. This is a frightened, disappointed people. And to this frightened, disappointed people, Zechariah is holding out this promise of peace in the midst of present circumstances that seems far from that. And we see that peace held out to Zechariah in three actions. Peace that's held out from Zechariah to God's people in Zechariah 9 in three actions. The keeping of a promise, the coming of a king, and the saving of a people. The keeping of a promise, verses 1 through 8. The coming of a king, verses 9 through 11. And then the saving, verses 9 and 10. And then the saving of the people, verses 11 through the rest of the chapter. So first let's look at the keeping of a promise, verses 1 through 8. Let's read this together again. The oracle of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadric, and Damascus is its resting place. For the Lord has an eye on mankind and on all the tribes of Israel and on Hamath also, which borders it, Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise, Tyre has built himself, herself a rampart and heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like the mud of the streets. But behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike down her power on the sea and she shall be devoured by fire. Ashkelon shall see it and be afraid. Gaza too and shall writhe in anguish. Ekron also, because its hopes are confounded. The king shall perish from Gaza. Ashkelon shall be uninhabited. A mixed people shall dwell in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of Philistia. I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. It too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah, and Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. Then I will encamp at my house as a guard so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor, listen to this, no oppressor shall again march over them. For now I see with my own eyes. So um, here we see the keeping of a promise. There's a lot going on here. Let me give you the overview, okay. We see the keeping of a promise. The necessary question to understand this section of text is, to what promise do these verses refer? What's he talking about? Well, it's the promise of a kingdom. That the land that was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as the kingdom of Israel would be theirs by right with, in the end, God encamping there with his people. We can trace this promise back to, all the way back to Genesis 12. Okay, and if you remember, I think, I think this is my first sermon that I preached on Zoom in maybe March of 2020, but um, we preached through Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Let's, let's read this together. Now, The Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house into the land that I will show you and I will make 
of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. Okay, so the reason for this promise was in part to restore a remnant of righteousness back to God himself. It was for God to restore a remnant of righteousness. So it's not like, it's not like God cares so much about hundreds of square miles of dirt, right, in a particular area of the world. It's not just about the dirt. It's not just about the land. It's about the, the people of God being restored as a remnant of righteousness to himself. And l- let's go back and make this case. Do you remember Genesis, right? Sin had entered the world almost immediately in Genesis 3 after creation as humanity had fallen into sin. And rather than having the ability to address our own sin and defeat it, it became very clear to us very early on in this that actually sin had dominion over us. That there, there was this snowball effect of wickedness in our world that culminated in the flood just three chapters later. So creation and then the fall immediately. And then just three chapters after the fall, wickedness is so rampant, it's so horrible. People are um, doing such terrible and terrifying things to one another that uh, the flood comes. And so God set apart a, a, a remnant for himself, Noah and his family. Would Noah and his family be able to write the ship? Be able to write the course? Maybe Noah is this promised one that the Lord promised to Eve that would come to, to put things to rights. But no, after the flood was over, rather than having the ability to write the course of humanity, Noah immediately falls into sin. His children immediately fall into sin. And the snowball effect of wickedness begins again. And this world is inhabited by wickedness. But God's desire is to restore to himself a people. To establish a kingdom for them in which wickedness is no more. They're God's people in his place under his rule once again. Right? And so he tells Abram that he will give him this land and from it will come a kind of restoration that will bless all the families of the earth through this one who is to come. Three chapters later, he gets more specific related to the nature of this promise. He says, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the river, to the great river, the river Euphrates. The land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. So this land is promised, right, as a place where God's people can flourish in his place as his people, under his rule. They take possession of that land. God, God gives them this. In point of fact, it would not be until the rule of King David that the full possession of this land as promised would be realized And God establishes his temple in the midst of his people, his presence with them. He dwells with them. He desired to be their God, for them to be in his place, to, to, to rule over them for their good, for their good. He desired for his people to become then a light to the nations, a means by which every tribe and tongue and nation could know the Lord by hearing the truth proclaimed. But upon taking possession of this land of promise, the people of Israel well, they also would dive headlong into wickedness. Rather than becoming a light to the surrounding nations, they would allow the surrounding nations instead to pull them away from God and into all kinds of idolatry, wickedness, abuses. And so after the judgment of exile, the land of promise is once again filled with the enemies of God. You know, like God's people are judged. They're, they're, they're brought out of the land because of 
their headlong dive into wickedness. And now they return after knowing what it was like to possess this land and to have God in their presence and the enemies of God are once again dwelling there. And so in Zechariah's time, there's an obvious barrier to this promise of a kingdom. Well, there are a few actually, but at least one of the barriers is that the enemies of God are still either ruling over them, Persia, or they're actually still dwelling in this, these parts of the land that, that are promised to God's people. And it's here that Zechariah speaks this oracle or prophetic utterance in which God himself is clearly telling them that his promise has not been forgotten, to gather a remnant of, of the righteous, to gather his people together. He's not forgotten his people. Our God is a God who keeps his promises. Remember, as we talked about in the first two sermons, the, the, the word Zechariah, the name Zechariah, actually means the Lord remembers. He does not forget. Our God is a God who keeps his promises. He will be against those from Hadrach and Damas Damascus, Tyre and Sidon, Ashkelon and Ekron, Ekron and Philistia, those, those who stand opposed to his rule, those who stand opposed to his people. Now, there are some who see in these first eight verses a prophecy concerning Alexander the Great um, and all these nations, and they essentially say, like, look, this is a forward prophecy about what would happen about 150 years later when Alexander the Great uh, kind of sweeps through and removes the Persians, but I don't think that's correct for a few different reasons. Um, I believe, instead, this is a picture of a future event even further removed in which God will fully and finally place his enemies under his feet and bring his people peace. A as a few commentators note, Zechariah, here's what he's doing. He's drawing on Israel's past. The land of Israel they once possessed as a people, in his place, under his rule, to portray the future in which God will once again restore his kingdom. And that's portrayed by demonstrating the need for justice against wickedness and suffer unneeded suffering, unjust suffering. He writes this in the second part of verse 1. He says, For the Lord has an eye on mankind and all the tribes of Israel. The Lord has an eye on mankind and all the tribes of Israel. So this sentence can also be translated, for, the Lord for to the Lord belongs the eye of man and all the tribes of Israel. To the Lord belongs the eye of man. That's the sense of the passage, I think. Not only does he have an eye on his people, but in the end, as a result of this judgment of wickedness, the eyes of his people belong to him. That kind of language really should remind the hearers of Zechariah's words of prophecies that have already come before them. The book of Isaiah, in which Isaiah prophesies in an oracle against Damascus, very fitting to the context here, and he says, on that day, man will look to his maker, and his eyes will look on the Holy One of Israel. In other words, this judgment that Zechariah pretty obviously describes here, that Isaiah described as well, in which God's enemies are wiped out, it will result in, in God's people having their sight restored back to the Lord, looking to the Lord, setting their eyes on him, turning from their sin and wickedness and idolatry, and turning toward the Lord. And yet there are many who've rejected God in favor of their own way. In verse 2, he writes, Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise, Tyre has built herself a rampart, heaped up silver like dust, and fine gold like the mud of the streets. They've sought wisdom in themselves. They're, 
they're very sophisticated. They're very eloquent. They're, able to, they don't, they're not in need of the Lord. They're not in need of revelation. Thank you very much. They're able to navigate the world perfectly well on their own. They can do this. They can be wise in their own eyes, wise in their own strengths. And not only that, but they see, so worldly wisdom, yes, but also worldly wealth and strength because they, they heap up silver like it's just dust. Find gold like it's the mud of the streets. They seek a kind of wisdom and strength and wealth in themselves and in other things rather than seeking the wisdom of God. It reminds me of what the Apostle Paul writes in Romans when he says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things, right? And this, this, as Paul continues to tell us, wreaks all kinds of destruction and chaos and havoc and suffering all over the world. And so, Paul says, they're due the wrath of God. They're due judgment. That's the very thing that Zechariah describes here. But behold, the Lord will strip her, verse 4, behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike down her power on the sea, and she shall be devoured by fire. This is the idea. This is the theme, right? There's a lot that we could go into here, but the, the overall theme is Philistia will have its worldly pride stripped away. Gaza will have its worldly king struck down. The, the wickedness of idolatry that brought horrid practices like the drinking of lifeblood you know, in, in, in the pagan temple will come to an end. God will judge. He will judge swiftly. He will judge with justice. And after he's finished, he will stand guard over his people. He himself will stand guard. Verse 8, Then I will encamp at my house as a guard, so that none shall march to and fro, no oppressor shall again, this is why I don't think we're talking about Alexander, no oppressor shall again march over them, for now I see with my own eyes. So this is the keeping of a promise. God will, in the end, rid his kingdom of all evil and suffering, suffering at the hands of evil. I'll have more to say on that at the end, but for now, let's follow the logic. So the question becomes... If that's the case, through what means will God keep this promise? Like, how's he going to do it, right? And if you, that's a really reasonable question because if you think about it, all right, so the people of Israel have been hearing that God's going to come and bring this final peace for a long time, and yet, you know, 150 years from when this prophecy is given, so then finally, 150 years later, well, you know, they've been under Persian rule. Alexander the Great comes in and wipes out that rule, but now he... He divides his kingdom into four parts, and one particular king that rules over Israel is particularly nasty and evil. But don't worry, so he rules over them, but then another group comes in and wipes them out, the Roman Empire, and now they're oppressing Israel. So, so you, you have this history in which they continue to be uh, under the subject of foreign rule and oppressed, and there's this idea of how long until this peace is finally going to come How's God going to keep his promise? Why should I trust that God's going to keep his promise? So we go from the keeping of a promise to the coming of a king. The coming of a king, starting in verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Sing aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. 
His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Here on the second week of Advent, we read about who it is that will ultimately institute the peace that's promised to God's people. Like, how's this going to happen? If the first eight verses spoke of the keeping of a promise, these two verses here talk about how that hap- how's that going to come about. How's that going to transpire? What's the means of the promise? And so as Israel might expect, after all this waiting in exile, you know, waiting in disappointment after exile, God's promises will come to fruition. There's a promise. There's a guarantee. They're exhorted to rejoice and shout, shout aloud because the king is coming. They're instructed to rejoice because they can now know for sure of his coming. This is the Lord speaking to them through Zechariah of this coming. And this is an understandable exhortation for a people who've waited so long for their king to once again hear that they have this hope. It's expected. But what might not be expected is the way this king comes. There's this constant assumption throughout Israel's history, specifically post-exile, right? There's this constant assumption that for God's kingdom to dawn, for the kind of peace that Israel wants, to be experienced. God must raise up a Messiah that's essentially a great world leader, a great king who comes to lead soldiers against whatever enemies are standing against Israel in this moment, whatever oppressors are over them. And yet listen to to the descriptions of this king. He, unlike the world that stands opposed to him, is righteous. He's righteous. He's in right standing before the Lord. He doesn't have the stain of guilt that the tribes of Israel have. And more than that, this once again connects this king with the promised one, the, the branch, the shoot, the, the, the one that the prophets speak of, who is to come, this, this one who comes from the line of David. Right? This, uh, throughout the Old Testament, he's talked about it as, as the one who brings righteousness. We see this throughout 2 Samuel in which we see this Davidic covenant where there's this coming king in the line of David who's going to rescue his people. But it spills over then into places like Isaiah 9 where we read this. I mean, we tend to read it this time of year, but, but listen to Isaiah 9, especially now in connection to Zechariah 9. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder and... His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, this king comes to establish righteousness. He is righteous and he comes to then by nature make his pe- by his nature make his people righteous so he possesses righteousness he also possesses salvation now a reader during zechariah's time might hear this and think yes salvation salvation from occupation salvation from those persians salvation from those who want our harm finally we have liberation from oppression Just as many first century readers would hear this and think, yes, salvation from Roman occupation. Someone to topple the Roman Empire and establish God's kingdom on earth here in Jerusalem. But the question is, is this the kind of salvation that this king possesses? We see that as we read on because third, he's described as humble. Uh Uh-oh. He's not riding a horse ready for war. 
He's riding a donkey. You know? And imagine, imagine being a reader of this with the kind of anticipations that Israel has during this time and moving forward all the way to the time of Christ. How can this be good news? Like, how can we find salvation if our king comes to us humble and riding on a donkey rather than ready for war? And yet this is good news because in this image, we find one contrast and two similarities. There's one major contrast here. And then there's, similarity is not quite the right word. There's a type and a fulfillment of that type. And I'll explain what I mean in a second. First, let's look at the the one major contrast. Notice how in verse 9, Notice how the king, in verse 9, this coming king, is contrasted with the worldly kingdoms of verses 1 through 8. The kingdoms of the world trusted in their own power and might. They trusted in their own wisdom. They trusted in their own wealth. They they thought that they could essentially get themselves out of whatever their problem was, and yet it all was for nothing. The coming of the king, in verse 9, is not a prideful coming It's actually quite the opposite. It's very different. His trust is entirely in the work of his father. So there's a major contrast here. The kingdoms of the world operate out of a worldly might, a worldly power, a worldly wisdom. This king humbly trusts his father for all things. But there's also two striking similarities. There's there's a, a type. So throughout the Old Testament, we find these types of the Messiah. These stories, we find it in the Psalms, we find these figures that prefigure the coming of the Messiah. And we see it looking backwards because clearly here we have this messianic prophecy in Zechariah 9 about the fact that this coming king is this shoot, this branch from the line of David. He's going to come riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, humble, with righteousness and salvation. Okay, so this this is the Messiah that we're talking about. But look backwards. It should prompt the readers, really, to look backwards and ask, first of all, what Old Testament king What Old Testament king might these readers remember who also rode into Jerusalem on a donkey after putting down a major revolt? It was King David after putting down the revolt of his own son and riding into a donkey on a Jerusalem became for God's people an image of suffering and distress. So here when you read Zechariah 9, what you're essentially reading is an image of a suffering king, a suffering servant. And that shouldn't be That shouldn't be new to God's people. If you read through Isaiah, you you read about a suffering servant, a suffering king, a Messiah who comes to suffer. And we see that here. There's an image here of suffering and distress. And so a coming king rides in on a donkey, image of a suffering king, a suffering servant. But that brings us to the second striking similarity. Or or we, we could say like David was the type, but here's the fulfillment. Because who else then rides into a donkey into Jerusalem on his way to great suffering? Here we see the prophecy fulfilled. The prophecy points us forward to the coming of Christ who came not into a worldly palace. You know, Jesus didn't come. Jesus didn't come into this world. The Messiah didn't come into this world with billions of dollars, bankrolled, power, status, all of this. No, he he comes into a humble stable. He didn't ride a horse into Jerusalem in order to save his people from the Romans, but he rode a donkey on his way to a cross to save his people from their sins to save his people from their sins. Because listen, 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 if we're ever going to get to the kind of shalom that we we seek, that's what needs to be dealt with. Listen, um, it's doing that very thing. It's the establishing of a kingdom in which sin itself is defeated 
that ultimately is the only thing that could possibly enable true peace. The cutting off of the war horse and the chariot, the uniting of God's people, speaking peace to the nations, it's only going to be toppling sin. And we'll talk about why as we go, but that's what brings us to the keeping of a, so from the keeping of a promise, the coming of a king, the way that promise is gonna be fulfilled, and now the saving of a people, starting in verse 11. And for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare the Lord, uh, today I declare that I will restore to you double. For I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall devour and Tread down the sling stones, and they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine, and be full like a bull, drenched like the corners of an altar. On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. For how great is the goodness, and how great is his goodness, and how great his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish, and New wine, the young women. So in the end, listen, there's a picture of this kingdom. But in the end, God's people will be saved. So there's two realities that Zechariah 9 is really holding out to us centrally. On the one hand, so God's people will be saved. Wickedness will be destroyed forever. God's people will be saved. Wickedness will be destroyed forever. This is a vision that we see here. God's people will be saved. That's the benefit of this coming king's work that immediately is spelled out in verses 11 and 12. The phrase, the blood of my covenant, is found only one other time in the Old Testament in which um, God makes this covenant with his people at Sinai and the the covenant is ratified with the sprinkling of, of blood upon them. But here, given the reality of a suffering king, it's actually the blood of the king that ratifies the covenant. What he has done for us that we could never do for ourselves. And this truly does set them free from the waterless pit. Like, I love this image because, listen, the, the image really captures the primary problem that the people face. The primary problem they face, the central and sinister, deep problem in which they need salvation from, isn't the Persians, it isn't the Romans, it isn't the Greeks, it's sin. It's like being stuck down a waterless pit where there's nothing you can do to save yourself. You can't fight your way out of a waterless pit. You're stuck. You need someone to do for you what you could never do for yourself. And once saved from the pit, they're instructed to to do what? To return to their stronghold and wait for the final moment in which God will put all wrongs to rights as prisoners of hope. Looking around, yes, seeing in this world that things are not the way they're supposed to be. But they have hope. They're prisoners of hope in this world. They're not prisoners left without hope awaiting the final coming of their king. I think it's a beautiful picture. So on the one hand, on the one hand, right, this passage speaks of Christ coming, not primarily to win a war for a country or to lead a people to a worldly military victory, but, but he comes primarily to save them from their sins. Don't you understand? Like, if, if, God, if God's role here is to come in, to roll in and say like, I'm going to rise up a military leader who, yeah, is going to free you from the Persians and then reestablish Israel as Israel and, and, you know, fight a military battle. What's going to happen? What's going to happen not even a, a very long period of time later? 
Sin's going to start up again. God's people are going to go headlong into wickedness. There's going to be more judgment. Why? Because the central problem hasn't been solved. There will be more oppression. There will be more uh, foreign rule. There won't be peace. There won't be shalom because God's people will continue to have to be judged for sin. The, The world will continue to grow in wickedness. Sin must be dealt with. He came primarily to save them from their sins. My favorite Advent text comes from Matthew 121 because it gets to the heart of it. I read it to my children often. I speak of it from the pulpit often, especially at Advent. You shall call his name Jesus, Savior. Why? For he shall save his people from their sins. He came in order to die. He came in order to suffer for us on our behalf, taking our place, taking our own suffering that we deserve upon his shoulders so that we can have life in him, so that we can be saved from our sin, reconciled to God, transformed to a new way of life that trusts in him, spread his kingdom here while we wait, while we wait, by his spirit at work here while we wait for him to come and bring this to completion. So on the one hand, the passage doesn't speak of Christ primarily to win a war, but to save people from their sins. On the other hand, this passage does speak of a coming judgment, a final judgment, a Revelation 19 moment in which people will be held to account by Christ for either trusting in Christ or in themselves and other things. Wickedness will be brought to an end. That's what the rest of this chapter describes. It describes the saving of God's people because of, in part, God's judgment of the wicked. So hang on a minute, listen. After this full paragraph of this bloody judgment against the wicked, it says, on that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people, for like the, his his people, right? For like the, the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land for how great is his goodness and how great is his beauty. And this combination that we find in the scriptures of both God's love and mercy in Christ at the cross and the judgment of God against the wicked. That can be really difficult to navigate and difficult to understand, especially in the West. How can a passage about God's judgment of the wicked that really speaks in terms of like either a wine press or a a blood sacrifice, these kinds of, of, of images like we saw throughout Revelation, how could that possibly be followed with the statement for how great is his goodness and how great his beauty? Let me offer three pastoral reflections on this text that I hope might help reconcile that for you this morning. Might help you understand this text, other texts, might help you reconcile Old Testament, New Testament, might help you to apply this text, right? To live according to it. Okay, first, number one, three reflections. Number one, God's judgment isn't the antithesis of his love, but rather flows from the same source. Let me explain. It's easy to have a lot of focus on the kingdom, right? Like, it's easy for churches to say, it's all about the kingdom and kingdom work, right? And so we have all this focus on the kingdom and kingdom work and our part in righting wrongs and seeking justice in the midst of injustice without talking at all about what must happen to deal with the very thing that causes injustices and abuses that we so desire to see come to a halt. Like I've said this before, right? But everyone wants to talk about justice. Nobody really wants to talk about God's justice against human sin. In order for God's kingdom to be established, wickedness will and must come to an end. It has to. It has to. The way in which peace will be brought into this world fully and finally is in part through judgment. Remember uh, in Revelation, where those who stood opposed to God 
would ultimately not turn to him, even if it meant judgment. Like, you had these earth dwellers in Revelation, and they would, the text tells us they would rather have the mountains fall down upon them, crash down upon their heads, than repent and have eternity. Like, they know the judgment's bad, but they're not, like, crying out for repentance because they hate him. They're enemies of the Lord. They do not want him. Um, and so, if the human heart is so stubborn that we will continue to grow and grow in wickedness, and if God permitted that to continue forever, we would forever have wickedness and injustice and abuses in the world and suffering at the hands of that in the world. Like, so, so this goes beyond vindication. We can't have it both ways. We can't have our cake and eat it too. We can't say, oh, the God of judgment against wickedness and sin, sin seems like another God, but I love this God of mercy and grace over here because like, if wickedness is allowed just to run rampant forever, that's not very merciful. It's not very merciful. I love how Elizabeth Ochtemeyer captures this theme in her own commentary in Zechariah 9. She writes this very thoughtfully. She says, the Bible is testifying to the fact that evil must be actively resisted and done away. It does not disappear by itself. Hitler's must be made to cease their holocausts. Someone has got to break those swords and fashion the spears into pruning hooks. But by testifying that God is the divine warrior, as Zechariah 9 does, the Bible is saying that the ultimate destruction of evil belongs to him. The ultimate destruction of evil belongs to him. And that's a good thing. That's for our good. This doctrine of the judgment of God is actually for our good. And that brings us secondly then, the doctrine of God's judgment against sin. First of all, it's not the antithesis of love, but it flows from the same source. But second, that doctrine won't actually, when it's properly understood and applied, it won't actually give way to more vindictiveness and hatred, but less. Let me explain why. It's easy to talk about, again, it's easy to talk about a kingdom of peace without any destruction while ignoring that um, the good that hope of God of judgment gives to his people. When we actually hope in a God who will be an ultimate judge of evil, we do not have to strive for vengeance when we're wronged. But rather, we can leave that, that vengeance to the Lord. We can trust in him. We don't have to do, you know, as Nicobrick does in um, Prince Caspian. We don't have to partner with the White Witch in order to topple Miraz. Like, I've used this illustration before, but I think oftentimes, why, did Nicobrick, now why does Nicobrick uh, partner with the White Witch? Because he doesn't believe that Aslan will judge Miraz. You know, he thinks he has to take matters into his own hands. And so, in his book, Exclusion and Embrace, Miroslav Volf, who's from an area of the world that was engaged in brutal war of vengeance, concludes that in order to not retaliate and seek vengeance, a person must believe in a God of judgment and vengeance. In order to not seek out vengeance and vindictiveness, a person must believe in a God of judgment. He writes, my thesis that the practice of non-vindictiveness requires a belief in divine vengeance will be unpopular with many Christians, especially theologians in the West. To the person inclined to dismiss it, I suggest imagining that you are delivering a lecture in a war zone. Among your listeners are people whose cities and villages have been plundered, then burned and leveled to the ground whose family members have been brutally killed. The topic of the lecture? We should not be vindictive since God's, God is perfect non-coercive love. Soon you would discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that divine vengeance is bad and leads to more violence. 
In a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die. As one watches it die, one would do well to reflect about the many other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. Right? He says this, is a, this idea that, that divine vengeance is bad and leads to more hatred it's like it's a pleasant captivity of the liberal mind. It takes like the quietness of a su- suburb in which we're disconnected from violence to think that that's going to work. Instead, what we need is a trust that in the end, God will put all things to rights. And so I don't need to take matters into my own hands. I don't need to be vindictive. I don't need to be hateful. You know, there's a sense in which I think the church today can make the mistake of leading out of fear. Fear, regardless of who's, which political party's precipitating that fear, but we can lead out of fear that, that, you know, we need to be very reactionary, but instead, what does the church get to do? Proclaim the gospel in peace and in hope and in confidence and in assurance that in the end, God is the one who will put all things to rights. We can put our hope and trust in him and proclaim the gospel of of grace to the world. So um, that leads us then, third and most importantly, at the center of this doctrine of God's judgment against sin is the coming of Jesus Christ into that sin to bear it for us. Salvation is at the center, not judgment. Jesus says that he doesn't come to judge the world because it's judged already. Like this reminds us of of, um, Genesis chapter 6, the flood narrative, right? What was at the center of the flood narrative? Not judgment, salvation, the salvation of Noah. There weren't any firsthand accounts in Genesis 6 through 9 of uh, the people who were judged at the flood. It reminds us of Genesis starting in 19. There weren't any firsthand accounts Accounts of the judging of Sodom and Gomorrah. What was the first-hand accounts about? Lot and his family being saved. The, the, the focus here in Zechariah is primarily on the salvation of his people. Jesus says he doesn't come to judge the world because it's judged already. We are already deserving wrath, but the word became flesh. Like God didn't just say you're deserving of wrath so you'll, you'll have it. The word became flesh. God stepped into human history in the person of Christ to bear the wrath on our behalf so that we wouldn't have to. It's easy to talk a lot about the kingdom, but never talk about who the king is. It's easy to talk a lot about a kingdom movement that we're supposed to be a part of and dismiss the reality of what our king primarily came to do to save us from our sin. And it's also easy to dismiss the reality that in the end, the same king will ride on a horse of war, Revelation 19, to judge for all the reasons that we discussed. But in this passage at its center, we find the coming of Jesus Christ for us. And so we should rejoice. We should follow the instructions here. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud. Child of God, shout aloud. Right? Because our king has come and he will come again. And at this table we get to rejoice at the reason for his coming. That his body was broken for us, his blood was shed for us, that we might be reconciled to God. And so this morning we we come to the Lord's table together to remember this together and to proclaim this to one another for our for his glory and for our joy in him. And so I invite you forward. If you are a believer in Christ, if this gospel is something that you hold to, come and take these elements. Use them to remind yourself of the gospel and to remind one another.